When you roam around England looking at lovely gardens, be sure to visit where Wordsworth lived in the Lake District. There are some fantastic gardens there, and it's not far from where he wandered lonely as a cloud and saw the daffodils. Coming up, friends from England share their enthusiasm for English country gardens. Katie Marin started a traditional kitchen garden in her backyard in Connecticut. There has been something particularly satisfying about pulling vegetables out of the ground and then enjoying them that evening. She tells us how learning to garden has helped her get through difficult times. And physicist Alan Lightman suggests our brains need a little vacation to help our creativity bloom. There really isn't as much time for play as there used to be. So I think that our children are suffering as well as adults by the frantic pace of life that we lead. Take a break with us for the hour ahead. It's Travel with Rick Steves. Did you realize that wasting a little time can actually recharge your brain? Professor Alan Lightman explains why we all need a little unstructured time, a little mini-vacation for our thoughts. That's a little later in the hour ahead. And Katie Marin tells us how working on her garden has helped to ground her, so to speak. It gave her a sense of where she belongs through the difficulties of the last few years. We're at 877-333-7425. Let's start today's Travel with Rick Steves imagining ourselves in a fragrant wonderland of color with our British tour guide friends Tom Hooper, Roy Nichols, and Gillian Chadwick as they take us into a classic English country garden. In an English country garden. In an English country garden. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. I've joined by three mere musical guides, and we're talking about English gardens. And English people just break into song at the at the even mention of an English garden. So Roy Nichols, Gillian Chadwick, Tom Hooper, all Musical guides. Absolutely. I've never heard you guys sing. Oh, you can tell. Musical <laughs> You know, I am not into gardens. If I don't know what the opposite color of green is, but that's the color black. of my thumb. Black. I've got black a black thumb. Black thumb. But when I'm in Britain, I gotta say I'm really blown away by the gardens. I enjoy them. Hidcote Manor, Bodenland Gardens. Because, yeah. Beautiful gardens. What is it that distinguishes an English garden? I think it's because so many of the continental gardens are so manicured and so organised. Yeah. And at the heart of a true English cottage garden is a certain amount of disorganisation. You mean weeds? Not weeds. Anyway, <laughs> weed is just a flower in the wrong place. Yes. I think it's that not over-organised, a certain amount of disorganisation, a riot of colour, not worrying too much about matching colours and everything else like this, throwing all sorts of plants together that normally you wouldn't associate with each other. And it gives that very sort of almost wildness about it. And I think that's at the heart so of it. So there's an intentional roughness. Yes, yes, yes definitely. Yes. So and it's not over-manicured, over-organized, yes. Because when I'm at uh, Beatrix Potter's cottage, it's just a beautiful sort of yes. festival of color, but yeah. it doesn't yeah. seem very well organized. That, that would yeah, be very formal. typical of a, and that's, of a house garden. And that's yeah. quite deliberate. Maybe it goes back to the Romantic era when people, well, does it go, have an Well, I think it has a much longer history than that. Mm-hmm. One thinks about the 18th and 19th centuries, the Romantic movement and the picturesque movement. 
but that beginnings of English country gardening go back to medieval times. And where, where might we see something like that in our travels? There's a wonderful... I mean, there's the Physic Garden in, in Chelsea, which is a good mm-hmm. example of yeah, one of those early herb gardens. There's the Wealdon Downland Museum in Sussex, not far outside of Chichester. Um, this is a recreation of or rebuilding of medieval buildings on a particular site, and they have some wonderful recreations of medieval gardens. It is quite interesting how when centuries roll by, different influences come into the way you design your garden. So the medieval gardens give way to Tudor gardens. And then when you get to the 18th century, there is this idea, we must control nature. So you have great landscape gardens like Capitoli Brown, who at places like Blenheim Palace. Capability Brown, this is the guy's name. Yeah. He's a great landscape yeah. architect. He wasn't christened that. No. no. Sir okay. Lancelot. Sir and Lancelot. he'd arrive and say... <laughs> I have the capability. To do. Oh, that was his nickname. Yes. Yes. So he was a yes. very proud man, a yes. proud gardener. I, I, have, yes. I have the capability to turn your estate into the best view in England. So, so they called him Capability yeah. Brown. Yes. What, what are the top two or three names to remember among landscape architects in Britain? Uh, Lenotre is the... Lenotre, that would be yeah. a Frenchman. Yes, yeah. Did he have he, an impact in England? He came over to landscape ah. Greenwich. Because yeah. you find his work in the Loire Valley yeah. in the chateaus yeah. there. Gert- Capability Brown. Gertrude Jekyll. 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 Yeah. Oh, Gre- Sissinghurst, um, Virginia Woolf. Uh, no, Vita uh, Sackville West. But I think the important thing is it tends to be the polite buildings, the large estates, the large country houses mm-hmm. that tend to adopt the continental fashions in gardening, whether it's Italian or French. It's the English country gardens that remain constant and that sort of naturalness. English country gardens. What's a good example of that? Places like Sissinghurst in in Kent. Hitcourt. Hitcourt. There's just something intoxicating in the air when the gardens of Britain are in bloom. Right now on Travel with Rick Steves, we're getting tips for enjoying scores of formal, wild, and historic gardens that you can tour in the British Isles. Our guides are Tom Hooper from London... Gillian Chadwick, who lives in nearby Sussex, and Roy Nichols. He makes his home in the English countryside of Devon. And if you were just traveling around Britain, everybody's got this typical itinerary. What are three or four gardens that we should be sure to factor in as we're traveling? Well, one of my favorites is Bodnant in North Wales, just outside the town of Conway. So if you're going to North Wales to see all the castles, make, and a, and it make isn't, a few hours. It isn't for... English because it's Wales, but it's one of the great gardens. Mm. In, gardens. Yeah. It's, uh, it's got this manor house where you can sit on the back deck and look out at these gardens, yeah. and then you can hike down, and I believe there's even sort of a mystical a forest you walk, a yeah. little valley, and it's just yeah. a nice little hike even. Yeah. Gorgeous thing. Jillian. I, I live in Sussex, and uh, that's very near Kent, so these are the two gardens of England, basically. So there are dozens of beautiful gardens, Nyman's, Leonard's Lee, Wakehurst Place. Where is this relative to London? South of London, about 20, 30 miles. So within an hour, you could get to some of these gardens from London. This is, of course, not England. It's Ireland. But I was really impressed at Powers Court Garden, if you're going to be in Dublin. Uh, Roy, you've had groups in Powers Court. Yes, yeah, south of Dublin in the Wicklow Mountains, a gorgeous garden based around an old, ruined 18th-century manor house. A lot of these gardens are based around some historic manor house. Yeah, Yeah, I I come from Cornwall, uh, which is a milder place than most of the rest of the country. So there are some fantastic gardens down there. Cotteel is another manor house where they have gardens. So when you see the manor houses, remember a lot of manor houses may not have a famous garden, but they've got a garden. They might have a labyrinth and they've got some fun out in the... And Lanhydrock, which I think is just in in Devon, I think. I don't think so. I think it's near Bobman in Cornwall. (laughs) Like many of the fine things that come from... (laughs) Okay, boys. Okay, boys. (laughs) This is Travel with Rick Steves. We are 
debating gardens in England, and there are a lot of gardens to enjoy. The, what about just at Kew Gardens? I mean, that's probably the most yeah, famous yeah. opportunity. How could we forget? Roy, what's Kew Gardens? It's the, the main sort of headquarters and gardens of the Royal Horticultural Society. Botanical. Botanical Society. Uh-huh. And it's got this uh, industrial age iron and glass uh, structure, yeah, well, which those, is quite yeah, striking on those its Those great greenhouses of the 19th century, which mm. could be really large and elaborate, it's an ultimate one in Kew. Oh, and it's like going to the jungle in it London. Is, it is. Know. But all country houses would have had them on, on a large or small scale, growing th- exotic things like oranges and pineapples. Yeah. Um, and that must for have the been a big house. deal in the 19th yeah, century yeah. to well, grow this yeah. sort of thing. And pineapples are so expensive, you could rent them for the evening and return them the next day. <laughs> rent? <laughs> Only in Britain can you rent a pineapple. That's that's pretty good. Now, is it my imagination, or does Anne Hathaway's cottage up in Shakespeare? Oh, yes. oh yes. yes, it's yes. a gorgeous. Yes. That that really, I just thought the it was epitome. like an explosion of color, yeah. and also a classic English garden because it seemed intentionally messy and set against the beautiful outside of the with the thatches cottage. coming thatch, down. It's yeah. like the thatches are like bangs on a hair. And I think that is the quintessential view of so many people's view of England. That sort of old thatch building, timber-framed, with these riotous gardens with all this colour. Oh, it is nice. Now, something a little more formal would be rose gardens. And in my travels, I've bumped into rose gardens around Britain. Where are some rose gardens you'd hit? Hampton Court. Hampton Court. Hampton Court has got the most glorious gardens. Don't miss the rose garden there. There's a rose garden at right in Hyde Park. In uh, Regent's, uh, Regent's Park. 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 Near, okay, Regent's. near Baker Street. Okay. And Warwick Castle has got a superb yeah. rose garden. And you miss it. You're, you're yeah. making a beeline for the castle, mm. and then there's a little path through the hedge, and you've got this glorious rose garden. Yeah, it's a super So place. rose gardens, pay attention to that, and labyrinths. Uh, Lab- labyrinths we, are we quite fashionable now. Yeah. Mazes. 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 Mazes, that's yeah. right. Hampton Court, Hampton Maze, 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 Hampton Court, maybe the most famous Hampton Court. Le- yeah. Lee's Castle has a very And there's a very up-and-coming one at Blenheim Palace as well. Oh, yeah. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking gardens with three people very enthusiastic <laughs> about English gardens. Give me a little rendition of your favorite tune, please. Roy, Gillian, oh. and Tom. La, 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 In an English country garden. This is such an inspiration. I'm going to England. I'm going to roll up my sleeves. I'm going to a garden. Our phone number is 877-333-7425. And Elise is on the phone from Nevada City in California. Elise, thanks for your call. Sure, hi. Hi, do you have a comment or a song for our guides? <laughs> <laughs> a comment. One of the less of a formal garden was Henry Moore's home. What really impressed me was his acreage of this rolling hills and grass, and sitting among these 70 acres are these massive stone and bronze statues. Yeah, yeah. Just They were absolutely exquisite to just touch them and walk around and be among his work. I believe it's the largest collection. This is Henry Moore's home, actually. Yes. Hoglands is the name of his home, which kind of attracted me to the whole idea of, well, well go and, see what Hoglands and, and is. where is this from in relation to other places we might go, Roy? It's in Kent? Hertfordshire? Hertfordshire. 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 So find Henry Moore's home, and you've got a chance to mix the gardens yeah. and his beautiful sculpture. Yes, it was quite I'm, impressive. And Elise, his garden is just littered with these beautiful Henry Moore statues, this, yep. the, the minimalist uh, mo- modern statues. And quite deliberately, Moore placed some of the statues mm. in sheep pastures. Yes. So you get all the sheep wandering around these incredible pieces of artwork. Nice. Elise, thanks for your call. Sure, thank you. Tom Hooper, Gillian Chadwick, and Roy Nichols, thanks so much for getting us a little inspired for English gardens. Just to sum it up, what's one more tip you would give to our listeners who are planning a trip to England and might want to enjoy the gardens to the most? Gillian. 
If you can travel in May, it's my favourite time with all the blossoms. <laughs> and if you happen to be in Wales, Bodnant Garden has the most fabulous Laburnum Arch where you walk about 100 yards and it's like bells of yellow flowers dropping down on you. Tom Hooper. If you're in the Lake District and you're interested in Wordsworth, people go to Dove Cottage, but don't forget to go to Rydal Mount where he spent most of his time. That was um, after he had some money and he moved into a fancy manor house. Yeah. Yeah. And there are some fantastic gardens there, and it's not far from where he wandered lonely as a cloud and saw the daffodils. Mm. Right. There's an organisation called the National Garden Scheme, which brings together private gardens and private gardeners. And one or two days a year, usually sort of June time, at the height of the garden season, they open these private gardens, gardens that are normally closed off to the public, you get the chance, sometimes for a small fee, to see these wonderful gardens. Gillian, Tom and Roy, thank you so much. And my black thumb has just got a little more uh, appreciation of green. <laughs> <laughs> thank Thanks, you, Rick. Ben. Okay, thank bye you. now. If you need permission to just goof off a little each day, Alan Lightman joins us in a bit to explore how some unstructured time is actually good for your brain. But first, it took a while for a New York City girl, Katie Marin, to feel at home in the countryside of Connecticut. Getting her hands dirty and developing a garden out back has turned out to be just the thing to get through trying times. She explains the benefits of becoming a gardener, next on Travel with Rick Steves. Katie Marin has been the chair of the board for Friends of the Highline Elevated Walkway in New York's Upper West End, and she's written about city parks and city squares in her books. She's tapped into her penchant for celebrating public spaces, squares, plazas, and parks to make her own garden into something more than just a pastime. She moved out of New York City, bought a home, country home in Connecticut, with plenty of room for a garden and spent two years making it a place where she could be truly rooted on her own land. Katie details her journey and what the earth outside her own back door could teach her in her book, Becoming a Gardener, What Reading and Digging Taught Me About Living. Katie joins us now on Travel with Rick Steves to tell us all about it. Welcome back, Katie. Thank you, Rick. It's a great pleasure to be back. I have very fond memories of the last time. One of my great joys is getting to talk to people like you who really appreciate a dimension of life that um, I have yet to really throw myself into. And gardening is one of those. And I don't uh, often start off reading a quote that kicks off somebody else's book, but I just, I love this quote from 2,000 years ago by Cicero. And he wrote, if you have a garden and a library, you have everything you need. There's a lot of wisdom in that, isn't there? I think there's a huge amount of wisdom. And when I first heard that quote about 10 years ago, I really wondered what it meant. I've pondered it ever since. And while I'm still not sure exactly what it means, I think it definitely emphasizes the elemental importance of gardens in our lives. And it certainly was one of the couple of inspirations for doing this book. And the inspiration for your book also was this deep-seated need that apparently you had when you decided to move out of New York City to Connecticut uh, with, with more than, it seems like more than a goal. It was a need. You wanted to, to get rooted, I mean literally rooted, by planting your own roots and, and getting close to the garden. Can you tell us, just to set up our interview, tell us about this journey. Yes. About five years ago now, our family discovered this house in Connecticut. 
in the beautiful countryside. It was true countryside. We live in New York. Uh, that is still our base. But this house was meant for all of us and then future generations of our family. It was built for a family before us who had lived there about 40 years and a lovely family who sold it to us. And we definitely did, as most homeowners, new homeowners do, we made it ours. It felt like ours. It looked like ours to other people. But somehow for me, I felt like I was living in their house. Mm -hmm. And that was a rather off-putting feeling. In fact, I tried to figure out what I could do. Uh, one thing I did was to get sage, which I'd never had before. And I weaved it around the doors and the windows, hoping that would make a difference. But somehow I still felt like I wasn't in my own home. Uh, one day on a walk with the dog, I thought, well, maybe if I root myself to the land, that will root me to the house. And that's what prompted me to make a garden. Now, tranquil and calming, that's the, the feeling I had just paging through your gorgeous book, the way the art fits the, the topics and uh, the paintings that you include and, and your dreams about how connecting with nature, with dirt, can really enrich your life. Now, the way I understand it, this was a family dream. You and your husband were going to make this the, the next stage of your life. And then, sadly, your husband passed away. And then we have the pandemic. And you had a lot to cope with personally. And it was kind of, uh, it gave you a more of, a, of an impetus to really get the most from a, a wellness point of view out of your garden. Tell us about that. Yes, it was definitely my husband's and my dream to have this house for us and our children. And then when they have children, and the house is big. So it could include everyone, I would think, naturally. Who knows what life would be like over time, but... Uh, that was our goal. And he did die very suddenly, totally out of the blue, in December of 2019. And then, of course, as you mentioned, the pandemic hit in 2020. By that point, I'd say we'd spent 10 or 12 nights in the house. So we immediately bolted to the countryside, as a lot of people in New York did who had places they could go. I felt very lucky that we did have a place we could go. So we could walk outside and feel free and feel safe. Mm -hmm. It was a lot to contend with. And I think being there was, as we just said, calming for me and calming for my children as well. Those of us who live in New York remember that time as being very gray and very cold. It was a particularly unappealing spring. Mm -hmm. And what I had first done earlier in the fall of 2019, before any of this had happened, was to plant masses of tulips. And when they came out in March and April, the joy they gave us mm. at a time when everything was still brown, there were no leaves out on trees, it was, it was stark, was vast. And I think right there, I appreciated all the more the value of a garden. Well, this was in the darkest times of COVID, wasn't it? This was in 2020. Absolutely. Yeah. I've got so many friends in Europe who are just so um, enthusiastically uh, city dwellers. They just have an apartment in Paris or in Rome, and they love it. And then suddenly you're in a pandemic, and your apartment, which was a springboard into a celebration of a life in all of its diversity and vitality, it becomes more of a prison, and they can't get out. And uh, 
fortunately, you, just two months, three months before this, this happened to our whole world, you suddenly moved into what is the perfect place to get through a pandemic. We did. We absolutely did. And it also gave me a chance to be more, be there with the house, get to know the house better, make it feel more like I live there. And at the same time, be much closer to nature. One garden writer wrote about how she really could tell the day, the day of the month, by what was happening in her garden. And I thought that was so astute in observation. And I certainly wasn't anywhere close to that. But I did have a sense more of seasons and the change of time and the warming of the year by being there day to day rather than being there just on weekends. Yes. Katie, you wrote, a garden like life can never be pinned down. It's in a perpetual state of change. Uh, You had a concerted effort to feel rooted, and you realized the best way to feel rooted is to put down roots literally, to plant things and make roots happen. Was there something to that? Did you find that sort of rootedness in the dirt? I did. And, in fact, one writer talks about the healing power of digging. And she talks, in this case, she didn't have the kind of sudden upheaval that I obviously had. But there's something, again, very elemental, I think, about just putting your hands in that dirt. And it takes you away from everything else. I think that's one reason people love gardening so much. Mm-hmm. It, it puts them in their own world and sort of lets the cares of the world disappear for a while. And I think that certainly was satisfying to me. And it's how basic is it? It's When you think about it, it's, it's so very healing. This is Travel with Rick Steves, and we're talking with Katie Marin. Katie has been a fixture with the arts and cultural organizations in New York City for years. She wrote for Vogue. She's been on the board of city giants like the Met, the New York Public Library, the Friends of the High Line, and the the Doris Duke Charitable Foundation. But moving to a country house in nearby Connecticut presented Katie with a new opportunity to develop her skills at feeling rooted at home. Katie's book is called Becoming a Gardener. What Reading and Digging Taught Me About Living. And you're not the first person, Katie, to be philosophical about this. The French philosopher Rousseau, as you explain in your book, wrote, Tell me about the garden you're dreaming of, and I will tell you who you are. Does that resonate with you? It did. And I've thought about what would I be and what am I? And for me, first of all, what I would like to be is a dirt gardener which is that person that really sits on the ground and digs in the dirt. Mm. But when I dream of a garden, I dream about two different things. One is very wild and romantic and full of all sorts of toppling down vines and flowers. And the other part is a very structured vegetable garden, something very productive and purposeful. And really, that's what I've tried to do in this first garden is to make it what often people call a kitchen garden, which has flowers in it, but it's largely vegetables. And there has been something particularly satisfying about pulling vegetables out of the ground and then enjoying them that evening. Mm, There is something. I mean, if people haven't done that, they really have missed an important part of life, is just pulling something out of the ground and then eating it almost immediately. It's it's mainlining all the, the beauty and the fertility of the earth. 
There's something about it. And it comes across in your book. Your photos are just gorgeous. I, I noticed what it was about your photos. A big dimension of it was the light. Did you ever think about that, how important light is for a garden? Definitely. Two thoughts on that. One is the photographer, Bill Abranowitz, I agree, made the most beautiful photographs. And so much of them is about the light. It's a sort of the broad brush of light in late afternoon across mm. the entire garden. And it's light on dew in a plant so close up or the light coming through, streaming through a tree. Mm. I think he was amazing in catching light. Mm. Also, one writer, Beverly Nichols, talked about the four L's of gardening. And they are in this order of importance in his mind, loam, light, love, and luck. And obviously, one needs sunlight in order for a plant to grow. What was the first one? What was the first L? Loam, meaning soil. Soil, soil loam. Light. And I think that soil, that's another thing I've learned a lot about. And I never thought I would be interested in the technicalities of soil or what goes into making yeah. good soil. And I've actually become fascinated by it, which I guess tells me that maybe I have, in fact, become a gardener. Well, yeah, because you wrote so vividly about chocolate earth. Yeah, I love this line, if soil is chocolate earth, compost is black gold, and manure is the glue that holds it all together. I think you'd appreciate that one writer calls beautiful, healthy soil devil's food cake. Yes, and, devil's food yeah, cake. It really does look like it. Yes. And then in your your book is like traveling. I mean, you know, this is a travel show. And with the help of your book, you actually travel through the garden and the different dimensions of it. And it's, a, it's like finding a different community. Uh, you talk about plants and trees of note, pumpkin, kale, rhubarb, roses. Uh, tell us a little bit about your thinking about why one plant or tree would be of note. Of note, I think it's just of importance to me. For instance, you mentioned kale, and kale is of no importance to me. I don't like kale, but my daughter loves kale. And kale is also easy to grow. And particularly for a young, brand-new gardener, it's valuable to have something easy to grow. Mm -hmm. That's satisfying. So in that sense, kale was important. Pumpkins are something I tried to grow when our children were small. And every year, I'd get the timing so off, no matter what it said on the seed packet, that I basically finally gave up. And I started to do that again. Trees are entirely different matter and one thing we did that seems to have moved several friends is that, and I was copying people. I read about a boy and his bar mitzvah. I read about a couple on their wedding, a woman in England who, for her birthday, would always ask for a tree instead of a present. And so I oh. thought to mark the fact that we're now in this house, which we plan to have mm -hmm. for a long time to come, we would all choose our own tree mm. and plant a small tree and then over time watch it grow. One writer talked about when you plant a tree, you change the landscape and it will never look the same way again. I, love I thought that. that was very moving and it was moving certainly for me to have these trees be planted for all of us. And when I watch them grow, it gives me satisfaction. Katie Marin is our guest on Travel with Rick Steves. She outlines the life lessons that digging in your own dirt can provide in her lovely book called Becoming a Gardener, What Reading and Digging Taught Me About Living. 
Katie's also written about the value of public spaces in her earlier books, City Squares and City Parks. We have a link to her work and her earlier interviews with us at ricksteves.com slash radio. Katie, there's so many dimensions to appreciating a garden that you just reveal and shine a light on. One of them is the beauty of scent and how scent prompts memories and it announces new arrivals. Uh, a flower scent really is worth uh, studying and appreciating to fully appreciate the garden. It is, and writers have talked about how it's an aspect characteristic of flowers that people don't often think about, but it can be the most meaningful of all. And we think about scents, they are always very fleeting. They come and they go. Even a woman walks by with a beautiful perfume. You smell the valley and then you move on to the rest of the room, whatever it might be. It comes and it goes, but somehow that memory of the scent stays with you. So in that sense, I've learned much more about the power of scent. Yeah, there's so many things to appreciate that without being purposeful, we don't appreciate. You know, I, I do not have a green thumb, and it's it's kind of um, a danger of using that as an excuse not to appreciate what you appreciate so vividly. I'm inspired by your book, but I wouldn't know where to start. For somebody who really has never gotten into gardening, what are a couple of do-it-yourself tips? Where do you begin? How can you not be sort of intimidated by the whole process? Well, first of all, you should not worry about whether or not you have a green thumb because that stopped me from trying to garden for years. And I have always thought, like you do, that I have no green thumb. I I really have a negative green thumb. Hmm. But there are writers, and I quote them in the book, who will say that green thumbs mean nothing. That's all wrong. There's no such thing as a green thumb. There are gardeners and non-gardeners, and the gardeners are the people who put in the work. And I think that's true. I think one thing that's wonderful about a garden is it's never perfect. It can't be perfect. It's Mm -hmm. dealing with nature all the time and different weather. And any gardener at whatever level they are is always dealing with trial and error. So in that sense, there should be some sort of relief that whatever you do, it really doesn't matter. It hit me early on in this project that, in fact, my quest was to become a gardener, but that I never had to take a test to prove it. No. Yeah. Right? And so it was really just for myself. Yes. As far as where to start, I think you you just start. You start with good soil and that you can figure out in a variety of ways. Yeah. And then you figure out something you might want to see or look at and go ahead and plant it. Katie Marin, thanks for writing Becoming a Gardener, What Reading and Digging Taught Me About Living. And if we could just wrap up our, our conversation with how your garden has has been a newfound, sort of a newfound way of being, of creating a newfound friendship with the natural world. That's so true. It's, it's added a huge dimension to my life. I had hoped it would. I didn't know whether it would. As I continued along in the project, I wasn't sure it was. But then in the end, I realized it has And as I now look back, having done it um, and continuing to garden, I realize all the more how incredibly valuable it's been to me. Katie Marin, thanks so much. And uh, thanks for inspiring uh, gardeners and non-gardeners alike with your book, Becoming a Gardener. Thank you very much. 
Whether or not you have a favorite garden to escape to, our next guest suggests we'll all be better off if we allow ourselves a little downtime every day, just to let our minds wander. Alan Lightman sings the praises of wasting time in just a minute on Travel with Rick Steves. Who would have imagined that it would take a global pandemic to force some of us to slow down and rethink our priorities? Still, with our smartphones always at the ready, those rare moments we used to have to just be lost in our own thoughts are becoming an endangered species. Alan Lightman thinks that leaving room for unstructured moments is something we all need. Alan's no hippie. He's a theoretical physicist who teaches humanities at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. Alan's known for his books and novels that explore science and philosophy and our place in the universe. He's with us now on Travel with Rick Steves to tell us what we stand to gain when we give ourselves half an hour a day to just let our minds wander. Alan, thanks for making time to join us today. Thanks for having me, Rick. You open your book with remembering as a boy how you had those delightfully unproductive hours after school. And as I read yours, I was thinking about mine. Can you describe that moment for us as we all think about our childhood before we got more productive? Well, I grew up in the 1950s and 60s, which was, of course, long before the Internet. Life was slower then, and, of course, life was even slower 100 years ago when Thoreau lived on Walden Pond. But I remember walking home from school, and it was about three miles, and I went through a field, a large field. It must have been 100 acres at least. It was just full of ponds and trails and trees, and I would just wander home. I would, If there was an interesting turtle, I would follow it and see where it went. I would sit by the pond and scoop up some tadpoles and just let my mind wander, let my mind think about what it wanted to think about. And it seems like we have very little time for those kinds of moments today. I haven't walked home with schoolmates for many decades, but uh, do you think kids today have that same sort of uh, space in their day where they can just um, be out there and gaze at tadpoles or, or follow turtles? Well, I think maybe some kids in some rural areas do, but of course most of us live in cities and the pace of life in cities is fast. We know that the pace of life has been increasing rapidly in the last 50 years. Children after school, they have dancing lessons and piano lessons and soccer practices and lead a pretty regimented life. There really isn't as much time for play as there used to be. So I think that our children are suffering as well as adults by the frantic pace of life that we lead. Physiologically, how are kids suffering? Can you make a case that it's it's just not healthy for them to be? I mean, I think a lot of parents are driven by love mm-hmm. and, and concern for their kids' safety, where they mm-hmm. book them solid so they're not out, you know, rattling around in the in the back woods. But uh, can you make a case that it's actually detrimental to their health? I think so. About a year and a half ago, Time Magazine had an issue about the trend of increasing depression among teenagers. And there was a picture on the cover of the magazine, a very haunting picture that showed a a young girl, maybe about 15 years old, who looked absolutely miserable. Psychologists and sociologists have tried to analyze this trend 
of increasing depression among our young people. And they've concluded that one of the factors is the fear of missing out, the fact that Mm. our young people are plugged in to the Internet 24-7. On average, they send 110 text messages a day. They look at their smartphones every two minutes. And they're always checking to see what their friends are doing and measuring themselves against their friends. And there's such an avalanche of information on the Internet. And And that's exacerbated by all of the social media where kids get to share all the adventure they've got in their life, all their good-looking friends and so on. You have a Mm -hmm. concept called the wired world. You, You refer to that. What do you mean exactly by that? Well, by the wired world, I mean two things. I mean the hyper-connected world that we live in with the social media and the Internet, and I also mean the pace of life. The pace of life has always been regulated by the speed of communication, and the speed of communication, of course, has increased drastically in the last 50 years. When the Internet became public in 1985, the speed of communication was about 1,000 bits per second. Now it's a billion bits per second. That's quite an increase. that regulates everything. It seems like it's making us slaves to this sort of, it just kind of feels like an artificial urgency. Everything has to be fast. Does it occur to you that we just become mindless cogs in this Mm -hmm. frantic global machine and we don't step back and and see what it's doing to what's within us and and, and our, our souls? Yes. We are prisoners of the wired world that we have created ourselves. Technology by itself does not have values. It can be used for good or for ill. It's, it's we human beings that impart the values to technology. And we're moving so fast, we're so plugged in all the time that we don't have time to think about who we are and what our values are and where we're going. I think not only do we not have time to, to sort of check our, our self-identity and our values, but I think that our creativity is is harmed. There's a creativity test called the Torrance Test of Creativity that's been given for many decades, and researchers have noticed that the scores on the creativity test taken by children have started going down in the mid-1990s hmm. when the Internet became public. We've known for a long, long, long time that creativity requires unstructured time. It requires time of privacy and silence and solitude to let's just let the mind wander. And in your book, In Praise of Wasting Time, you wrote how great thinkers and artists from Einstein to Gustav Mahler, they actually structured unstructured time into their, into their lives because they knew that creativity needs silence. Yes, Mahler uh, used to take three-hour walks in the countryside after lunch in order to get new musical ideas. And uh, Gertrude Stein, the writer, used to take drives in the countryside and get out and just stare at the cows while she was working on an essay. Even Einstein talked about the importance of letting the mind wander. And that's what we need to somehow recover. First, we need to recognize that there's a problem, and then we need to make a commitment to putting more unstructured time and quiet into our lives. And it's certainly not easy. The son of a movie theater owner and a dancing instructor, Alan Lightman grew up in Memphis, entranced by both science and the arts. Today, as a professor of the practice of the humanities at MIT, 
Alan's work creates a dialogue between scientific concepts, philosophy, and spirituality. His most recent book, Probable Impossibilities, is a collection of meditative essays on how our place in the cosmos falls somewhere between nothingness and infinity. His other titles include Searching for Stars on an Island in Maine and his bestseller, Einstein's Dreams, which has been translated into at least 30 languages and adapted into a play and a musical. The topic of today's interview on Travel with Rick Steves comes from his TED book and talk called In Praise of Wasting Time. Alan, you know, we hear a lot about environmentalists who are concerned with the destruction of our natural world. It sounds like you're concerned about the destruction of a parallel world. It's like we have an inner world that's under siege. Yes. Uh, I think that most of the world's population has accepted the fact now that we are destroying our environment, and that's easy to document. The global warming and the ozone layers and Hurricane Katrina and so on It's a little harder to document the destruction of our inner world, which you might call our our inner self, which is the part of us that imagines, that dreams, that wanders, that thinks about where Mm. we're going. But I think that the destruction of our inner world is just as catastrophic as the destruction of our physical world. This is so interesting because this is a travel show that we're on right now. And when we travel, we go to different cultures and we can... Perhaps we can learn a little bit about the cost of our our frantic uh, tempo of life here by going to lands where there's a different cultural treatment of time. I remember when I was in India, there's quite a big culture shock in India because time mm-hmm. is not money in India. I'm always impressed right. by how in the United States we, we even talk about time like it's money. We bank it, we invest it, we waste mm-hmm. it, we save. In India, it's a whole different viewpoint. And uh, when you travel, you realize... I wouldn't have ever thought that the work ethic was not the work ethic unless I traveled. And then I realized our ethic is a work ethic. It's so interesting when we're raised, it's never a work ethic, it's the work ethic. You work work hard. My Norwegian relatives, they have a different work ethic. My Spanish friends certainly have a different work ethic. Have you thought much about that in comparing cultures and how we might learn from that? Well, yes, uh, it's a very good point that you have, and it demonstrates that our attitudes about such basic thing as time is culturally dependent. A few years ago, I was in a a village in Cambodia, off the beaten track, a village of only about five or 600 people that lived completely on subsistence farming. And every day, several of the women got on their bicycles and rode on a 10-mile dirt path to the highway where they could buy some food that they were not able to grow themselves. And they did this every single day. And through a translator, I asked one of the women how long the trip took. And she she got this puzzled look on her face and said, I never thought about that. And I was just stunned to see what a different relationship to time these villagers had that their day was measured by events and not by the clock. I happen to have a a little perch where I enjoy the sunset, and I surprise Mm. myself that I can sit on that perch because my days are pretty driven. I'm I'm, I'm a good, bad example Mm. of what you're talking about. But when I do take 20 minutes, sometimes I see the sun's up there pretty high, and I think, do I really want to stop all the stuff I'm supposed to be doing and, and wait until that sun goes down? But for me to watch that beautiful, beautiful performance and wait for that sun to set 
it gives my whole soul just a chance to to breathe and to flex and to and to think. Yeah. And I, I just think a lot of us are afraid of sitting still. We're afraid of silence. In my work as a tour guide, I've taken people to a lot of places intentionally to get them out of their comfort zone. Mm-hmm. And I think the most stressful place I've ever put my groups in in our travels was at a monastery called Teze, which is a wonderful um, interfaith kind of monastic world in France. And the whole thing is silence. You sit in silence and you meditate. And it just, my travelers were very stressed out by that. I have a, a friend who's a high school, used to be a high school teacher, and she started a practice where in each of her classes, the beginning of the class, she would ring a bell and she would ask her students to be silent for four minutes, only four minutes. And she said that it did wonders to their attention span, to their creativity, to their work, to their attitude, just four minutes of silence at the beginning of the class. I can imagine that would be a little bit of an adjustment, but I would hope the kids would recognize, hey, this was an mm-hmm. exercise that is worth a little a little introspection and a little thought. I think it, it shows itself in so many ways. How many people can sit and listen to a 20-minute long piece of classical music these days? I, I think a lot of people never even try. Yeah. We've grown so accustomed, especially young people, to constant external stimulation that we just can't sit still for five or ten minutes without it. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Alan Lightman. His book is In Praise of Wasting Time. I think a lot of people can go, okay, yeah, that's all fine and dandy, but what do you recommend? What can we do? How can we, as individuals, as parents, in, in the workplace and so on, how can we combat this? Just like an environmentalist would combat uh, the destruction of the natural world, how can mm-hmm. we who recognize this challenge and the importance for us to be able to be creative, to be able to kind of connect with ourselves, to be able to be in the moment. Well, I think that in schools, there should be a 10-minute quiet period in each day, and it could be in the homeroom period. But sometime during the day, there should be 10 minutes where everyone is just silent. I think that in universities, that there should be specially designated courses where there's a reduced amount of reading, and instead students are encouraged to mull over and reflect on what they're learning. Introspection. Mm -hmm. Uh, I think Mm -hmm. that everybody can find 20 minutes a day to unplug, to leave your smartphone behind and take a walk or just sit quietly in a chair. Mm -hmm. Uh, I think that the dinner hour is another opportunity for turning off all devices and just having conversation. Hmm. In the office place, there should be a quiet room in every company where employees are allowed and encouraged to go there, of course, without any devices, and just spend 30 minutes just with their thoughts. And it would not be part of the lunch hour. It would be a separate time. And companies that have experimented with meditation practice find that their employees are more productive, uh, they're more settled. You know, as a tour guide, I I keep coming back to travel because that's my world, Mm -hmm. and uh, I'm all about helping people have transformational experiences in their travels, to have Mm -hmm. revelations, to, to really have experiences and meaningful experiences, and something that we've stumbled onto a long time ago 
without even any recognition of this whole idea of the value of quiet time, is what we call a reflections period, where we would just, after having a lot of interesting experience, we'd get together and just take time to reflect on what we've experienced today and share these Mm -hmm. ideas before we jump Mm -hmm. into another experience. Because a lot of people are going to just pack their vacation, just like parents pack their children's summer, with no time to reflect. And I really treasure those reflections periods with me and my travel partners. Yes, that's very valuable and very smart of you to incorporate that into your travel experience. So we can learn a lot from this. It must have been an interesting exercise for you to take a break from your uh, theoretical physicist work and write a book about in praise of wasting time. I guess it's quite a challenge to uh, convince Americans that there's more to life than increasing its speed. Yes, I think that we're going to have to be confronted more visibly with the damage that's being done by not unplugging. I know that it took about 30 years before we acknowledged that smoking was bad for your health, and it took a lot of documentation, increased costs of cigarettes, Mm. but finally we were able to change our our habit of mind. And, And I think just as in smoking, we need a new habit of mind about the importance of quiet, reflective time. But you're going against a, a real powerful yes. cultural norm, and what you're proposing from an economic, from a capitalist point of view, I think could be seen as subversive. Yes. Well, capitalism has a lot of downsides, as we saw in the crash of 2008. So um, I think that we have to be careful in our embrace of, of capitalism. This whole concept that you raise in your book, In Praise of Wasting Time, I think is a lot more important, a lot more fundamental than a lot of us realize. Thank you so much for your work. And uh, could you um, wrap things up with one sort of takeaway thought of, of the value of paying attention to this issue? We're constantly sifting through the barrage of experiences that we have from one day to the next. And we need to remember who we are. And for that, we need to reflect back on our lives to remember things that we did. We're constantly reconstructing our self-identity from this kind of reflection. And to me, this is one of the most fundamental aspects of taking time for introspection and reflection. So a life well-lived is a life where we actually take a moment to know who we are, where we've been, yes. and where we hope to be. Yes. Alan Lightman, thank you so much for the inspiration and best wishes with your teaching. Thank you, Rick. Travel with Rick Steves is produced by Tim Tatton, Kazmora Hall, and Donna Bardsley at Rick Steves Europe in Edmonds, Washington. We get website support from Andrew Wakeling, affiliate promotions from Sheila Gerzoff. Our theme music is by Jerry Frank. Thanks to Maine Public Radio for their help this week. Find out what Rick's been thinking about lately on his Facebook and Twitter pages or read his blog at ricksteves.com. And we'll look for you next week with more Travel with Rick Steves. Hey, I'm Rick Steves. I love art. And in my new book, Europe's Top 100 Masterpieces, I share my favorites with gorgeous photos and vivid descriptions. It's a greatest hit sweep through art history via the finest paintings, sculpture, and architecture ever. It's all in Europe's top 100 masterpieces. Art for the Traveler. It's available now at ricksteves.com.